And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Welcome to Dave's Daredevil Podcast, a proud part of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. I am your host, J. David Weeder, but you can call me Dave. And this is the podcast where I read and talk about comics starring Marvel Comics, Blind Lawyer by Day, Superhero by Night, Daredevil. This time around, we pick up with the second issue of the Carl Kiesel and Carrie Nord run on the title, and we left off with an interesting cliffhanger last time. Rosalind Sharp, one of the toughest lawyers in the world, offered Matt and Foggy partnerships in her new high-profile New York firm. While Foggy accepted immediately, Matt was hesitant since the move would interfere with his being a masked crusader and all. But Sharp explained to Matt that it is him she wants. No Matt, no partnership for Foggy, and so Matt was left with a choice. Also, Daredevil went up against the villainous Mr. Hyde, and a dead girl was found at the scene, with Mr. Hyde daring police and Daredevil to prove that he killed her. And so, we pick up the story threads with Daredevil number 354, the July 1996 issue. We have a cover by Carrie Nord, inked by Matthew Ryan, with Daredevil crouching on a ledge, recoiling in shock as the red light of the spider signal illuminates him and the wall behind him. This cover is absolutely brilliant, a definite standout. And I've got to give the cover to the colors. The red and black stand out, and the cover has been really a favorite of mine for a long, long time. It just nails it, and it gives you the strictest idea of Nuff Said. Spider-Man's here. And inside this cover is a story entitled Charming Devils, written by Carl Kiesel, penciled by Carrie Nord and Rick Leonardi for some pages, inked by Matthew Ryan, lettered by Michael Higgins, and colored by Christy Scheel. And we open with Daredevil swinging around New York, pondering Rosalind Sharp's offer and trying to clear his head. Daredevil gets back to the offices of Nelson and Murdoch, where Foggy is shocked to see Matt hanging out in his costume sans mask. The two talk a bit about the offer, with Foggy saying that it was Rosalind Sharp that inspired him to become a lawyer. Hmm? Daredevil gets his mask back on just as Liz Osborne stops by. Daredevil leaves to get lunch as Matt Murdock as Foggy and Liz do the same, separately, of course. Over lunch, Karen says that she hasn't found a job, but her heart skips a beat. She's lying and Matt can tell. Lunch is interrupted when Ben Urich and Peter Parker stop by to chat and the Spider-Man swings overhead. Yes, you heard that right. Since that is so weird, Matt takes off to check this out as Ben, Peter, and Karen all cover for Matt's secret. Because they all know, but they don't know that each other knows, you know what I mean? Daredevil catches up with Spider-Man and coaxes an explanation out of the webhead with Chili Dogs. The TLDR version is that Peter is the clone, Ben Riley's the real Peter, for now. Both heroes become aware of somebody targeting them and avoid getting blasted by Image Comics reject the shooter. Guess what he does? Both dodges blasts and set him up to shoot a water tower, knocking the would-be bad guy out and ending the superhero team-up portion of the day. Later, Matt stops by the construction area where Rosalind Sharp's firm will be and accepts her offer, doing his best to set up boundaries, but ultimately failing. Rosalind welcomes Matt and even has his first assignment, defending a killer by the name of Mr. Hyde. And we wrap up the issue with the villain growling his demands to see his lawyer. To be continued. And with that, we will take a podcast promo break and then I'll be back to talk about the hijinks of Daredevil number 354. 
Image Comics, formed in 1992 by several creators unhappy with their current place in the industry. So they band together to make a new comics company for a new generation of readers. Creator-owned mutants, cops, black ops government agents, demon-possessed, and they are going to be the greatest comics ever. In April of 1992, the first issues hit the stands, and fandom resounded with cries of... Pouches? Why are there so many pouches? pouches? What? You don't like pouches? All the Pouches, an Image Comics podcast, is one fan's exploration of those early years of Image Comics. Youngblood, The Savage Dragon, Spawn, and more, with maybe even a few pouches along the way. So come give a listen at johnreadscomics.com. That's John with no H. Just you can spell it right. Welcome back. We open the issue and we get this really great splash page of Daredevil swinging around New York and the crosshairs are overlaid on him. There's nothing new or different, but it's just a great composition. It looks beautiful and you get a real sense of danger that's always around the man without fear. I really wish I could get this as a pinup or man in my dreams original art. And we get a peek inside Matt's head and he's thinking that swinging around New York makes him realize it feels great to be alive and I can definitely see that. If there is a pure draw to being Daredevil, it's sort of the freedom of getting above New York and the clarity of seeing it from a different perspective, almost as a whole, or at least as a sectional whole, versus the small, confined spaces you're in in the city. And it's beautiful. I think it's a great idea. And I love the idea that Matt is really accepting of what's going on in his life. He's accepted his dual role. He's embraced it even. And he's just a slightly more driven person in a very positive way. And of course, we get back to the offices of Nelson and Murdoch. And Foggy comes into the office singing because you're a human supernova, a solar superman, which A, means that Foggy likes Liz Fair, which makes me like Foggy even more because Liz Fair is one of my all-time greatest crushes. Oh, hot, 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 hot. And B, it also means that Kiesel has managed to slip in another Superman reference, and a subtle one. But going deeper on that, could Foggy's musical choices have to do with another Liz who's going to enter the picture in a few pages? Did Kiesel slip in some character nuance? Subconsciously, Foggy is thinking about Liz, so he listens to Liz Fair. I don't know if this is intentional or accidental, but it is very much there. A nice subtlety, and I appreciate it on another level. I mean, this is such good character work. For a subtle subplot that's coming along slowly, it is a nice niche that Kiesel has found for this, and I dig it so much. It's such a nice little character piece. But before we get to Liz Osborne, we get to Foggy kind of freaking out. He's just so new to knowing Matt's secret. He hasn't had time to really consider the extent of Matt's senses and sort of Matt's practiced way of controlling his surroundings. Matt kind of explains that he's pinpointed where the glare on the windows would be so nobody can see in. He's explored the space enough to know his way around and know what extent he can relax in it. And it strikes me as being true to an actual blind person in the real world. When coming into a new environment, they'll typically map it out to find any hazards and learn their way around. Like moving into a new apartment, here's the counter, here's the couch, so on and so forth. And this really strikes true to life. It's just that this is all so new to Foggy, and he really doesn't realize how much Matt technically sees with his radar sense and other senses. It's a learning curve is what it is, and that's okay, I'll give him some slack. 
But back to Liz Osborne, this is a nice little subplot that's coming along fairly slowly and very subtly. Once again, we're adopting a Spider-Man character into our Daredevil pantheon, because Liz is a longtime Marvel character going back to the Lee and Ditko days when she was Liz Allen. She was a high school classmate of Spider-Man and a potential love interest that never came to be. But she's a character that kept recurring. She ended up marrying Harry Osborn, who is the second Green Goblin, as everybody knows. No surprise there. So she's seen quite a bit of stuff because she's also the stepsister of the Spider-Man villain, the Molten Man. So she's a very ingrained character into the Spider-Man mythos. And I love that we're kind of getting the fluid Marvel Universe idea that these people live in the same city. Law of Averages says some of them should meet at some point. But up to this point, Foggy is, he's completely missing Liz's signals, which speaks to Foggy's self-consciousness. To him, Liz is out of his league. She could never be interested in Foggy Nelson, but she is. She's into him, and it's clear. She just happened to stop by and then ask him to lunch. It's a date, Foggy, and definitely you deserve all the happiness in the world because you are the sweetest dude on the planet. But moving forward, the art changes in the lunch scene with Matt and Karen to Rick Leonardi. It's a noticeable change, but not a bad thing. It's not jarring, it's not out of nowhere, but you know it's Rick Leonardi, you know it's not Carrie Nord, and I don't know if this was a scheduling issue or what have you, but Leonardi steps in and does some great work here. It also helps that this is a Spider-Man guest appearance, because Leonardi's a bit of a subject matter expert. His main claim to fame was that he was the primary artist on Spider-Man 2099, so he does come from the Spider-Man family. The dialogue in this scene is hilarious. Karen is suggesting deviled eggs. You know, come for the daredevil, stay for the dad jokes, but he goes with the chicken sandwich with avocado, pepper jack, and hollandaise, which sounds amazing. I want some broiled chicken. In fact, let's let's skip this whole record. No, okay, I'll, I'll keep recording and we'll get it later. But the joke just doesn't stop. It's the talk of food. We have devil's food cake, shrimp diablo, and deviled eggs, and that makes me want to do a food-centric episode of this show. Maybe make some electric nachos or something like that. I don't know how that would translate, but it's a funny idea on paper. The crux of this scene is that Karen lies about her job search, and Matt can hear it. Duh, Karen. Karen's no stranger to Matt's senses. She's not foggy learning her way around. She pretty well knows the extent of it. She's used to it by now, and yet she continues to lie to him right to his face? She's literally known the secret the longest of Daredevil's running characters. Matt even thinks to himself, did she think I wouldn't notice? I'm Daredevil, you know. But like Matt, the reader's wondering what she's hiding. And knowing Karen's past, there's a lot of things that come to the surface. The reader's most likely suspicion is that Karen is looking back into the porn industry. I want to be absolutely clear here, that's not where this is going at all. I want to put any thoughts of that to rest. And one thing I want to mention is that to Matt's credit, he doesn't call her out on it. He doesn't even throw any type of suspicion on the table, which would have been natural. Not necessarily a good decision, but a natural decision. Hey, what if she's going down this road again? Maybe I should say something. But he trusts her. He's trusting in her recovery that she's been through for years and that she is not that person anymore. So kudos to Matt for giving Karen some credit and being a grown-up about this and letting her have her space. And then we get the best bit in the issue with Peter Parker, Ben Yurk, and Karen Page trying to cover for Matt when he takes off his Daredevil, which is, as he mentions later, the worst kept secret ever. And this kind of brings me back to something I talked about tangentially off the cuff last episode, but I want to concentrate on a little bit. Matt's secret and his penchant for keeping that secret, or in most cases not keeping it. Ben figured it out on his own. But Matt told Peter pretty freely during the aftermath of Gene DeWolf's death, and Karen's known for years because Matt told her. And last week I kind of made a haphazard comment that Matt tells his girlfriends, which is somewhat true. But I've been thinking about this for a little bit, and I'm glad the subject came up within the context of the issue, because that'd be awkward if it didn't. 
Matt kept his secret from his dad. Before there was a dual identity of Matt and Daredevil, he kept the idea of radar sense, etc. to himself. And maybe that's because he thought his dad wouldn't understand. That's what I thought on the surface. And surely his classmates wouldn't. He'd come off as a freak. And then we have our Stick and Maggie retcons. So for the most part, I kind of see, at least initially at the surface, why he wouldn't necessarily really tell anybody because he can't explain it completely. But let's go into this. Once Matt has locked that vault and he's keeping a secret, what are the reasons he would share the secret? And I mentioned Karen and Heather Glenn. Heather caught Matt by accident, but Matt told Karen. Romantic partners make me think that he's putting it on the table and trying to make a connection and trying to be honest and open to some extent, as honest and open as Matt Murdock can be. And that's somewhat commendable. He's trying to make a real effort at a relationship from time to time. It fails almost inevitably, but he's trying as hard as he can, which kind of calls ahead to the uh, Mark Wade run, where Kirsten McDuffie pretty much knew the secret because it's the worst kept secret ever. And Matt kept pushing it away because he didn't want that relationship. But once the relationship was open, this was on the table. So there's a part of Matt that, at least in romantic connections, wants partners to come in and have their eyes open. This is a part of me. This is something you're going to have to deal with. Outside of that, when Matt told Spider-Man, he was trying to draw a superhero back from the edge. He's trying to make a connection because, really, Peter was out of his mind. And Peter was succumbing to his anger and about to make a decision that would be permanently regrettable and irrevocably destroy him. So we have honesty in relationships, which is good. And then we have Matt doing a Hail Mary when he tells Spider-Man. It tells me that he maybe underestimates somebody like Foggy. And he's not entirely wrong to do so. Look, you know I love Foggy. You know that bromance is a key to my Daredevil fandom. But look at the story guts that I covered a few episodes back. Foggy gets into the underworld, doesn't know when to pull back. Foggy isn't necessarily a liability to Matt on one level. He's a liability to himself. And please mark my word here that I say he's not a liability to Matt on one level. We're going to come back to that. But Foggy would want to go all in on the superhero thing uh, years earlier. If it was if the timing was different, he would have been trying to help Matt in any way possible, and he'd end up getting himself killed. Plus, Foggy had a life. He had gotten married. He was a good lawyer. Having the secret would be a burden to Foggy. So after a lot of thought, I kind of saw why Matt, on one level, wouldn't tell Foggy. On another level, we're going to come back to that. But let's talk about how he said he never told Jack. Jack stands out in a way that's different from Foggy. If you think about Foggy long enough, you kind of see why. To some extent, it's not entirely fair, but it's not entirely wrong either. But when talking about Jack Murdoch, you're talking about his father, somebody who dictated Matt's entire being. Jack has been a specter over Matt for a long, long time, when alive and also when dead. He's the entire motivation for Daredevil coming into being. When Matt made a promise to hit nothing but the books, that defined his childhood and led to solitude. It led to some very negative experiences with his peers. But he kept that promise because Jack dictated his whole life. Then Jack's drive pushed Matt after the accident, and then Jack started making decisions based on Matt's condition. Jack drove Matt, but Matt also drove Jack, and these two were very much inseparable. They defined each other. We have Stick as a mentor, but he was never more than a, at best, a proxy for Jack, looking for approval from a father figure, which he never got from Stick. So Matt isn't a superhero as a kid. He's just a kid with some weird abilities that he doesn't understand. He doesn't have villains who are out to get him that he should hide his identity. So coming back to this, why would he not tell Jack Murdoch what he can do? And it's because Matt didn't want to find out what Jack would do with that information. Not that Jack would be cruel, 
but Matt didn't want his dad to A, think he's a freak and think he didn't, he'd just not understand him. That's terrifying. But he also didn't want Jack to make a stronger demand on him. Not a call to heroism or anything like that, but would he push Matt to protect himself even more with his abilities? Would he cocoon Matt from the world? Not so much coddling in him, but really keeping him isolated even more. Who knows what Jack would have driven Matt towards in that instance where he knew what Matt could do. Maybe there's another side to that coin as well, and these are all suppositions. I'm not going to commit to any one instance with Jack Murdoch because that is so nebulous. But maybe Matt being blind and Jack's doting and Jack's attention to that is what Matt wanted. He had a different relationship with his father after the accident, and telling Jack would have shattered that in a different way and pushed that who knows where. The third idea is after the retcon with Stick in there, if Stick had been discovered by Jack, Jack would have pulled the plug on that, and Matt would have pushed and the relationship would have been strained, it would have been bad. So keeping the secret with Stick in the equation makes perfect sense. But Daredevil had been around for almost 20 years before Stick was even mentioned. So I'm kind of speaking from both the pre-Stick years and the post-Stick years. And with Stick in there, it's much more streamlined. With Stick not in there, it's much more interesting. Because Matt maybe being selfish and wanting Jack's attention, pushed Jack into that ring to make that decision. It's a lot to think about, and I did a lot of it, but I don't necessarily want to weigh down the entire episode with this talk. But I do want to come back to Foggy, which is kind of the reason this whole thing got moving. And I mentioned Foggy would be a liability to himself, but I started thinking about this in comparison to what Matt would see with Jack Murdock and if the stick scenario was in play. Because if a father finds out his son is training with some ninja wizard dude, it's gotta go. As I mentioned, he's not necessarily a complete liability to Matt, but he is on another level a liability to Daredevil because this is causing a strain in the relationship. Luckily, the friendship is strong enough to get through this and cope, but there's a strain. And Foggy is Matt's BFF, his truest partner, the one person Matt cannot live without. But he's the ultimate liability for Daredevil because... And some of this has passed with just the tenure of Daredevil and the age of both Matt and Foggy, but at the early stages, Foggy knowing this, Foggy would have tried to pull the plug immediately. And the thing is, Foggy would have succeeded. It would have been rough, he would have pushed, it would have taken a while, but Foggy would have succeeded because Foggy is Matt's best friend. Foggy asks Matt will do it. Reluctantly? Yes, but Foggy would succeed where Karen didn't, and Matt would end up not being Daredevil anymore to protect his friendship with Foggy. Now, this would have been in the first five to six years. Matt's probably been Daredevil for, what, 15 at this point? So that liability has passed, but at that point, once that liability's passed, there's been enough time and enough lies that you can't just say, hey, I've been lying to you for most of our friendship. And when you think about the idea that Foggy is the one thing that could cause Matt to quit being Daredevil... It kind of makes sense that Daredevil is once again all about the self-preservation. It's a lot of maybe why he didn't tell Jack and a lot of why he didn't tell Foggy. And I felt kind of satisfied with that, that it's a flawed decision, but at the same time, it's actually a very logical decision. There are a lot of questions about Matt that I don't have answers to, but I feel like with this secret keeping, I kind of at least have enough ideas on the table that I can see it, I can justify it in story. But let's move on here. I'm way down a little bit too much time on the episode with that. We have a post-Clone Saga Spider-Man. And I know everybody gets the cold shivers when I mention the Clone Saga. And I'm not going to go too far into that. It's six months into this new paradigm post-Clone Saga where Ben Riley is Spider-Man, including the introduction of the book The Sensational Spider-Man. He's in this new Spider-Man costume, and it's a completely new paradigm. And Andrew Latham pointed out that there are good stories in this era. And I'd forgotten up until he said that, but I had actually a special place in my heart for Sensational Spider-Man. And if Marvel had stuck to their guns and said, no, this is this is the paradigm now and going forward, who knows what would have happened? 
but you're dealing with a decision that would be reversed by fear months down the line. And that fear-based decision nearly killed Spider-Man as a franchise. And I have a real soft spot that I've discovered for this version of Spider-Man, the costume, Ben Riley, because it was a weird time where I had to switch schools in the middle of my senior year. And that transition was a little bit rough. And the Ben Riley Spider-Man presented itself as a new beginning, a new jumping on point and a fresh start. And I kind of was able to glom onto that and look at the transition as similar to a new start, um, new me to some extent. It didn't really stick, but... At the time, for the first few months, yeah, I got it. It was a new beginning. It was a similar paradigm, but a very different one at the same time. So the Spider-Man era, specifically Sensational Spider-Man, kind of became symbolic to me. And kind of became a little bit of a frame of reference. And likewise, this Daredevil run, the latter part of it, became a bit of a touchstone for me for several months. As I acclimated to the real world and got my act together and then finished everything out that I needed to as a young man. But enough poetry here. It's just, it was an interesting era. And I love that Daredevil is presented as being smart. He offers friendship and conversation, and that's always nice, but the chili dogs are the clincher. Spider-Man and Daredevil's friendship is so odd. On the surface, it does not seem to be very tight. To some extent, it's very contentious. But even in the Ben Riley version, I think the two of them are well aware enough of each other to know that there is a connection, that they have some similar elements, and that they really do, they push each other, but they really do complement each other as well. Not only do we not get the fight and team-up dynamic, the fact that it's absent is pointed out on the page. We've got meta-contextual dialogue that really pushes this into, oh, I feel really good about this. We're having a conversation between these two people like grown adults over chili dogs and catching up on the superhero business, I guess. If there's a trope that I have that is very, very odd, but very, very prevalent in my fandom, it's that I love professional camaraderie. For example, Jurassic Park, when Alan Grant and Ellie Sadler and Ian Malcolm are talking science and they're taking everything in, I thought that was great because these are professional scientists who are disseminating the information. For some reason, I love that idea. Competent people having competent conversations about something that's unknown and revealing that to the, the viewer, the listener, whatever you are. I have a, a weird fascination with that. Here we have Spider-Man and Daredevil doing that as well, having this grown-up conversation and then they're working together because we have the Spider-Sense and Radar-Sense catching the shooter at the same time in a very great image, by the way. Very sharp, great colors again. And I dig it that these two are equals. They're professionals to some extent, although they're not getting paid for the superhero bit, but you get the idea. They've, they're tenured, they're experienced superheroes, and they're working together on that level as equals. And I dig that so much, it just catches me right in the this weird spot in my fandom. And I just mentioned a great shot, but if I have an overall criticism of Kerry Nord's art, it's that in this run he often repeats certain beats, specifically leaping from explosions. And we saw it last issue, we saw it twice in this one. The shots look almost identical, and it's hard to tell them apart. Not that it's a bad shot, it is visually arresting, but at the same time, you're kind of getting a bit of a chorus. Maybe that's the intention, which is kind of an interesting idea that Daredevil's always running from explosions and not looking back because he's a tough guy. But to me, it seems like an uh, easy composition for him and maybe an easy way for telling stories, which is fine. It just stands out to me. And then we have the shooter, who very much is a jab at Image Comics. I don't know if it's in any way, shape, or form a jab at Jim Shooter, because I don't know if Carl Kiesel ever worked with or for Jim Shooter, but it's definitely Image Comics. 
I mean, the shooter could get in the lineup with Overkill or any member of Youngblood and mix right in. I mean, it's pretty much just the 90s personified. And his motivation to make a name for himself by killing Daredevil, the hero who took down the Kingpin, is solid enough. Makes sense. Kind of the law of the jungle type of thing. But Daredevil makes a very solid case for killing Spider-Man. And at first, Spider-Man agrees. And then he realizes, wait, 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 wait. Slow your roll. And essentially, this fight is them playing with the guy, learning his limitations. And then they take him out with a solid bit of teamwork. By shooting the water tower. And I love this. I love great buddy team-ups. Spider-Man tells him he's despicable. And Daredevil kind of tries on the adjective. The despicable Daredevil. Which isn't too bad sounding. If I ever write a Daredevil comic. It will be called the despicable Daredevil. Daredevil correctly says that Spider-Man took all the good adjectives. Amazing. Spectacular. Sensational. Marketing needs a boost for Daredevil guys. Get the despicable out there. There's also a great joke about spiders having eight lives, which, which Spider-Man corrects him as like eight legs. This is, this is great. This is like two bros crushing superhero banter. They're not getting deep within their souls or the agony that they live with every single day. They're just being superheroes and to some extent having fun with it. Let's get down to brass tacks here. Comics are entertainment. Yes, there are stories that could be told that are important in comics, and they are told, hopefully often. Yes, the characters mean something to us. And yes, you can go through many textures with a single character. But at the end of the day, comics are entertainment. They're here to entertain us. We're supposed to be enjoying this, which implies some degree of fun. This particular team-up didn't delve deep into the psyches of either hero, really. It didn't tear apart the clone saga. It didn't talk about Born Again or all these great stories that have destroyed these characters. No, it just kind of allowed the characters to be characters. The shooter isn't some sort of recurring villain that's going to be the new big bad. He's just a dude that got taken out by superheroes that are better than him. And my point in all this is saying you don't have to have a mega crossover involving eight different titles and a core book and then core books within that small miniseries. You don't have to have an event issue with somebody dying every month. All you have to do is tell a good entertaining story and people theoretically will come to the book. At the end of the day, all we really want as comic fans are good stories, good art, and good characters. The rest is icing on the cake. Speaking of good art and good characters, we have Rosalind Sharp. And looking at her building, there's a establishing shot. And I've been all over Google Maps on this thing. It's an Art Deco building, probably in the Flatiron District of New York. And the word Mason is over the door. And I have not been able to pin down this location. It definitely looks photo referenced. It's not the Mason Hall. I'm not sure. I want to dig in a little bit deeper, but I'll put a pin here saying that I have not found this location yet. As much as I enjoyed the superhero bit of this issue, and I did, I'm actually more invested in the Rosalind Sharp angle at the moment. I love this conversation where Matt accepts her offer, but there's a lot of double meanings in their discussions. For example, Rosalind stands behind him and says, I'll always be right behind you, meaning that she'll be watching his back is what she implies, but she's also going to be watching over him and keeping him in check. This is such an awesome game of chess coming out in this. This is great character work. It's an intense tango, and I love every moment of this. Even when Matt accidentally, quote-unquote accidentally, hits her leg, it reminds her, maybe you'll want to stay out of my way in the future. The introduction of Rosalind Sharp is just so great to watch. She's like J.R. Ewing or Amanda Woodward from Melrose Place. She's a charming antagonist that you love to hate, and you will hate her. Bear that in mind. Once again, Kiesel's making the lawyer aspect of the book sing, and doesn't really skimp on the superheroics. But when he gets to it, he smashes the two elements together like a freaking magician. There's sleight of hand. Mr. Hyde. The fight last issue seemed like a one-off and got tucked in the background, and now the superhero has to defend the villain. Get me the next issue ASAP. 
this is compelling. I'm already I'm, I'm committed. I mean, I was going to be committed anyway because I'm doing the show. But if this was the real world and I'd been reading this in real time, get me the next one now. Let's bring this into the final verdict. I've made some of these points, but I'm going to put it all on the table. This is not a complicated issue, but it is an enjoyable comic. It reads somewhat briskly, but I don't feel cheated because I had fun. It's entertaining. It's why we read comics. It's great to see a simple, old-school Marvel team-up or Marvel 2-in-1 type of story, and it manages to streamline the post-clone saga Spider-Man enough to not weigh down the issue, which in and of itself is a feat. To beat the dead horse, the Rosalind Sharp angle really sells it. You can lean on the lawyer aspect, lean on the superhero aspect. It's hard to balance both, but Kiesel is about to get to a beautiful balancing point. The overall arc is allowed to breathe under these one-off A stories, letting Kiesel reveal his fulcrum point of Mr. Hyde and the bridge between the aspects here. And Foggy is being used, and being used well. They're building a romance, the strained friendship with Matt, Rosalind's trump card. He's actually integrated extremely well into the story. Karen is also used fairly well, but for her, it's more of a boiling pot. Both are, but she's a more noticeable boiling pot. But we have threads running for both of these without rushing them, and Kiesel manages to plant and water them and keep the reader invested in them without really revealing his hand just yet. I'm so glad that these issues will stand up to my memory. I was terrified when I opened them that they would not, but so far they have been fantastic, and it would have been devastating if they'd been a weak sauce issue one scrutinized. But with bits like uh, the Liz Fair angle, the superhero aspect, I'm, I'm definitely all in, which means that we have to read another one. Next time, we're going to do just that. We're picking up with the next issue with the mystery of Mr. Hyde deepening, and Daredevil needs to be careful or he'll get burned by the mutant villain Pyro. That is in one week from today. Between now and then, be excellent to each other. Party on, and remember that justice may be blind, but it can see in the dark. You have been listening to Dave's Daredevil Podcast. Daredevil and other Marvel characters are copyright Marvel Comics. Any music or sound clips are used for entertainment purposes only, and no infringement is intended. This show earns no money and exists for entertainment purposes only. Tonight